director uh, here in the room. We were doing some work on our speakers this week, and I think we actually know we accidentally bumped the thermostat, so it's a little chilly. So um, I'll I'll try to go quicker than I did last week. Last week I kept you like a whole hour so of preaching. So um, this one uh, is uh, a little bit shorter. And everyone said. Well, that's good. Hey, the Niners don't play till later this afternoon, so stop thinking about them. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Love you, buddy. <laughs> uh, right now, here's what I want you to do. You ready? We, we good? Everyone go like this. <sighs> now, if that smelled, that's on you, but it is a little bit warmer in here, okay? But no, here, in all seriousness, here's something I want you to do. Right now, I want you to think in your mind of someone that you cannot stand. Don't say their name, and definitely don't look to the person to your right or left, all right? But I want you to, I want you to think of that person. Maybe it's someone who's kind of personally wounded you or offended you and somehow, maybe they've kind of given you inner grief or frustration over and over and over again. Do you have that person in your mind? You do? Oh, let's not all be holier than now. We all need someone in our minds. And I want you to picture that when you came into church this morning, that was the person that greeted you. When you walked into that door, that individual, that whoever you had in your mind, was the one that greeted you and said, hey, welcome to, welcome to Redwood. Or I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you were driving downtown of our city, down on Broadway Street, and you came up to kind of the courthouse square there. And uh, there was a group of, of Black Lives Matter protesters there, and they've got their signs, and they've got their bullhorns. And then as you continue to drive, you see that there's another group that's there, and they're white supremacists, and they've got their signs, and they've got their bullhorns, and they're protesting. As you continue to drive through there, you notice that there's just an absolute breakout, and they start rioting and fighting. Those examples whether it is someone that is, whether it's personal or ideological, the, 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 those examples confront us with this question. What happens when we encounter a perceived enemy? Whether it's personal or whether it's ideological, what do we do? And Jesus here this morning, he's going to answer those questions for us. But before we get into the text, let me just say that a running theme in Jesus' unpacking of the Old Testament here, there's several of these that where he's unpacking where this is what you've heard, but this is the actual truth, that all of them, they kind of, they, they boil down to how we deal with people. And as a follower of Jesus, how you treat other image bearers is indicated of, uh, of how your love is for the Lord. And in this final one, of how he explains this kind of Old Testament law for us, Jesus intends to crank up the heat for us a little bit, and we would all actually like that in this cold room. But he's going he's gonna to crank up the heat a little bit, and this, it might even make us squirm a little bit in our seats. If we thought last week was weird about turning the cheek, going the extra mile, today we're going to learn about loving our enemy. Loving our enemy. Matthew 5, verse number 43 should be up on the screen. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. 
Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Now this topic of loving your enemy, to be honest with you, can feel a little kind of nice. It's kind of all packaged up. It's a little bit of an abstract idea in large part because we do not have enemies that are so obvious today as they would have had in the Middle East 2,000 years ago in the original audience that Jesus is speaking to. So for us, it can kind of, when we read these words or we hear them read, it kind of feels a little bit like Jesus is about to break out his kind of acoustic guitar and begin to sing Kumbaya for us. And that's kind of how it feels. Part of the kind of living in a post-Christian world is that we miss just how radical Jesus' teachings really are and how this teaching would have literally shocked the ear and the heart of the listener. Whether we, we can kind of, kind of imagine most folks today in our society, whether Christian or not, they wouldn't really kind of bat an idea at this concept of enemy love. Because we live in a world where it says, hey, let's just accept all. Let's just be loving of everyone. And so that's kind of the, the culture in the world in which we live in. And yet when push comes to shove, it feels like our culture, we're more divided and embittered towards one another than we ever have been before. As soon as we actually have to kind of live out our mantra of just be accepting and just loving of everyone, as soon as we actually have to do that, we begin to make excuses. Dostoevsky says this, speaking around kind of uh, one of his characters 140 years ago. Uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky said this in the Brothers Karmarzov, the more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, I often make plans for the service of humanity. And perhaps I might actually face crucifixion if it were suddenly necessary. Yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. I know from experience, as soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One, because he's too long over his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. I become hostile to the people and the moment they come close to me. But it, is always, but it has always happened that the more I hate men individually, the more I love humanity. Odd. But Jesus is going to give us a challenge this morning, and he's going to show us that your faithfulness as a Christian is going to be tested on the battleground of human relationship, on the battleground of, of, of human conflict, how you treat others. And in particular, your enemy will either strengthen or weaken your love for Jesus and your ability to experience 
what he wants for you in the here and now. And so what I want us to do is I want us just to begin to, to break down this text for us over the next 30 minutes or so. And just let's let, let's let Jesus' words, let's let this, this famous Sermon on the Mount lay its weight in on us. We just sang, Lord, I need you. And I leaned over to Sarah before she took the kids out and I said, Lord, we're going to need you with this text. And every one of us, including myself, I had, to, I, I had to study this and I had to prepare this sermon. I think it was on maybe Monday. Uh, I sent a text to Mike and I was like, yikes, this is a brutal text. And I didn't give any, any caveat with it. And he came back and he's like, what text? And I was like, ah, the text that we're going to be looking at on Sunday of, in a sense, we're told to love our enemy. So let's, let's pick it up in verse number 43. You have heard that has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So Jesus' words here, is starting in, in verse number 43, when he says, you shall love your neighbor, he's quoting back to the law of Leviticus chapter number 19. Jesus is later going to say in his sermon, and, and we'll get to it at some point, that, that, that the entire law is kind of in, in a double command, to love God and to love your neighbor. And he's going to say the whole law kind of hinges on those two things. He's going to say later in his message. But it says here again in verse 43, Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate your enemy. But what you'll find is that is nowhere in the Old Testament. It's interesting to me. He's like, this is what you've heard. This is what was being propagated at that time all the way through this law, starting in, in, in Leviticus 19, that you're to love your neighbor. But somewhere along the line, uh, the general consensus is that one of those examples were that the, the, that the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they had added on to this. They had added a little bit of extra, you know, kind of non-biblical command. And it's like, oh, and to hate your enemy. But by the way, that's nowhere in Scripture is that at all found. So Jesus here is calling out this concept to get back to the original intent of the Old Testament law and command that says you are to love your neighbor. And we've got to deal with some of these cultural assumptions if we're going to take this and place it into our 21st century way of living. And so we ought to begin to ask ourselves, all right, well, then who were their neighbors? So Jesus is speaking to them, and he's saying, hey, I want you to, you've heard that you're to love your neighbor, but then you're to hate your enemy. So who in their minds would they have been thinking were their neighbors? Well, you've got to, you've got to understand that it was pretty limited, Back in, their, back in their day, and maybe it is even in our minds today. So a neighbor was someone who lived near you, who you share a lot in common with, namely your faith and ethic background. So when, when, the, when the, 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 some 2,000 years ago, when they would have heard Jesus say, you ought to love your neighbor, they're thinking, okay, those that kind of live, live near me, my Neither of my neighbors uh, are here this morning. And so I'll check on them when, they, when, when I get home today. They're a little up in years, and so I'll see how they're doing. But so a lot of times that's what we think of. We think of our, we think of our neighbors that, or those that share a lot in common with us. But who would, they, who would they have thought their enemy was? Well, an enemy was essentially anyone outside that limited definition. So you know what they were able to do? They were able to hate a whole lot of people 
because this is what they had heard. They had heard, oh, well, it's okay for me to, for, for me to hate my enemy, and so anyone that doesn't necessarily think like me, and so on and so forth. Let me get a little bit ahead of myself. But for the sake of our text today and how we're going to use it, we're going to use this definition multiple times of who the enemy is. An enemy is a person or group of people who cause you harm, discomfort, and or who stand against what you value. So again, so that would connect with their thought process. They would, if it would go with their ethic background. So if someone stands in opposition of that, or of course, if they were to harm you or cause discomfort. Now with that definition in mind right there, an enemy is a person or a group of people who cause you harm, discomfort, or somehow stand against what you value, what you deem as essential for uh, life and practice, then we've got to kind of say, how would, how would the audience that Jesus is speaking to, how would they have heard this? And, and I, I've been telling you this all the way through this sermon. We've got to go back to there or we don't fully understand it. So they would have kind of taken the enemy concept and they would have divided it into two different groups. The first one is personal. Someone who personally caused you grief and pain. So there's the, there's the personal aspect and they immediately would have begun to think of the corporate aspect. And that is living in a strong group culture, which they did. The Jews would have thought more in this category as a collective enemy. So if you just kind of skim the Old Testament a bit, you'll begin to notice that Israel was always had some kind of larger enemy or some kind of uh, oppressor over them. And Israel was often the, the, the lesser of those. They were often the ones that were being oppressed, whether it was Israel and the Egyptians or whether it was Israel and the Philistines, or Israel and the Ninevites, or Israel and the Babylonians, and so on and so forth. And so Jesus says, in light of your enemies, whether it's personal or whether it's corporate, your charge as a follower of me is to love them. Oh, you don't, you don't have the out of hating them like you have been falsely taught. Your command, if you're going to be a follower of me, if you're, going to, if you're going to live your life in the fashion in which I am calling you to live, it is going to be loving your enemy. It's an agape love. That word agape, there's, there are multiple uh, versions of the word love in Greek. We kind of only really have one in English. So when you read in your Bible and you see the word love or you see the, the word charity, there's different kinds of words for that. Some is phileo, which would be brotherly love, kind of where we get the word Philadelphia from. Eagles? Oh, did they win yesterday? No, let's move on. Mike, that was for you. Sorry. Agape. Ah, see, I wasn't supposed to mention football. There we go. That's, that's at least what I'll tell myself. Agape is a selfless love, nothing in return. And that's why sometimes I like the word translated in the Bible as charity. Because charity gives a wonderful word picture of this where you are giving and you're not expecting anything in return. That's what an agape, a, a, a selfless love, that's the command here that we are to give to our, to, to, to our enemies, to pray for them, to want good for them. Can you imagine the shock value that such a statement would have had? Think of it. Jesus is saying, you've been trained that you're allowed to hate them. 
I'm telling them that you ought to pray for them. You ought to want good for them. You ought to give selflessly a type of love to them. Then verse 45 says, that ye may be the children of your father, which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, Jesus is saying God's blessing and God's gifts to people who are his enemies, who are far off from him, may even hate him, then he then we as followers of his kingdom, we're called to mimic that character in this way. And we see, we've seen, we, you see this played out in Jesus' life and in his ministry. You see Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter number 14. She literally would have been an outcast of that society, socially as well as ethnically. She was an enemy, the Samaritans in a sense, were an enemy to the Jewish people. They had names for each other. They would literally bypass Samaria because they didn't want to go through there if they had to travel. And so Jesus is saying in John 4, he's like, hey, but I've got to go to Samaria because I've got to meet this woman at the well. And there's a whole lot of other norms with a woman and what time she's going there. And Jesus is shattering all the norms. Why? Because he's saying, hey, we're going to love our enemies. You, you, you think the Samaritans are your enemy. They're not. And he showed this over and over again. Jesus interacts with the Roman official, a person who literally helped enforce the oppression and tyranny of the Jewish people. And yet Jesus shows compassion and heals his daughter in the process. Jesus shows immense love to Zacchaeus, who was a Jewish tax collector, someone who was socially ostracized by his Jewish community. Why? Because he was participating in the financial oppression of their people and just funding it to be even stronger. Or the Pharisees who stood against Jesus in his ministry and would often use religion and other forms of oppression. Jesus even loved them by calling out or condemning their wicked wickedness publicly. To call out sin for what it is and evil for what it is. To condemn when people treat others as less than image bearers as they are. That too, my friend, is an act of love. So Jesus loves by showing compassion, by serving and helping by coming alongside, by speaking corrective truth, that is the shape that his love takes towards those who have been considered enemies. So because God's character is not bitterness or division, he is love. And out of this agape love, he is patient and blesses them that hate him. It's that sun's going to shine on the good and the bad. That rain's going to shine on the, or come down on the just or the unjust. He's, it's not partial. It's given. It's extended to some that are literally his enemy and hate him. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We see this all throughout the New Testament. God saving those who are far off, the enemies, the one that are the least expected to be saved, bringing them under conviction and sin of their sin and saving them purely by his grace. One example of that, of course, would be the Apostle Paul, or maybe we know him prior to that as Saul of Tarshish. 
His conversion was a kind of, he was on a manhunt to stop Jesus, to stop any of, uh, of Jesus' followers, but God saves him. And in compassion, he tells him, I've got, I've got a new plan for you. I, I, I want you to go and I want you to turn this world upside down with, with, with other disciples. He's going to write most of the, uh, of the New Testament through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's going to uh, command, uh, he's going to give, the, listen to the command he gives to the church at Rome. Romans 12, bless them which persecute you. Bless, bless and curse not. Verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So we see evil, and we, and we fight back, not through means of force, but through means of good. And if God shows compassion to his enemies, then we ought to show compassion as well to ours. That is because every single human being is an image bearer. We've been talking about that through this sermon of the king. The call to follow Jesus is to see past all of, of, of what our differences might be, of the things that, that, that might be a struggle, and get to the truest thing about them. And the truest thing about them is that they are indeed an image bearer of God. And now you are on equal plane to be able to advance towards them as followers of Jesus in love and compassion. As a response, our call is to show this compassion and conviction and grace and truth. To call out and condemn evil, but not to respond the way the rest of the world does. We do not dehumanize, de demonize, or destroy people in the process because that's not the way of Jesus. But let me say something very clearly. Jesus is not saying you are not to have enemies. Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is actually saying that you will. You're going to have enemies in your life. Sometimes you can win them over, and sometimes you can't. But as followers of Jesus, our tactics towards our enemy needs to look different. It needs to be different than the way that the lost world that does not know Christ, the way that they respond to their enemies. So let me bring this definition back for us of the enemy. An enemy is a person or group of people who causes you harm, discomfort, and or who stand against what you value. Harm, right? It says there, harm. This one is overt. This is a person or a group of people who seek to hurt you either physically, emotionally, or psychologically would be considered an enemy, right? So Jesus is not saying that you can't have, have enemies in your life. So clearly, someone that's trying to hurt you physically, emotionally, or even psychologically, absolutely, you could deem them, okay, that's an enemy. Discomfort, okay? This is one that's a little bit more subvert. They're not kind of flat out just taking your name and just dragging them through the mud or wanting to harm you, but they do kind of make your life miserable, 
that person too, you could maybe consider your, your enemy. Now, let me just say something here real quick. The person here at the church that maybe drives you nuts sometimes with what they say or what they do, they're not your enemy, okay? Your spouse is not your enemy. All right, we're talking about someone that's literally just kind of just there to kind of be a perpetual annoyance in your life. They're trying to bring discomfort, okay? Jesus is not talking about a roommate, okay? That's not what he's talking about. Could someone be a nuisance? Yes, they can, but they're not an enemy. How about this last one, standing against what you value? So this is an ideological enemy, so you've got those that are physically trying to hurt you overtly, and then some that are kind of subvertly just constantly at you, and then now someone that stands against your ideologically. I'm going to give you a really easy example in this one right now. In our world today, politics. And I've said before, and I'll say it again, as followers of Jesus, listen, politics is not our ultimate hope. The Word of God trains us on things that we ought to, uh, to, to vote and voice our opinion on, uh, on moral issues, but listen, it's not, it's not our hope. And for the last many months, we've seen more ideological enemies arise in our country in really the last years. Maybe you stand up for change in our country and you find others oppose you. Maybe you stand for protecting the hundreds of thousands of unborn children who are murdered every single year through abortion. And in our country, you're going to have people who are for that. And then you're also going to have people that are going to be against you. They're going to stand against you. In fact, they're going to call you maybe evil or backwards or bigoted for any decision that you might stand, you might take. These would be what we would consider ideological enemies, right? So when you take that kind of uh, the ones that's going to harm you, maybe the one that's a little subvertly just constantly there, they're just, just, just there, they're going to, uh, they're, the discomfort, you know, you can consider them an enemy. And then someone that is ideologically completely different from you. Look at verse number 46. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans or Gentiles, each time it says publicans, it's referring to kind of Gentiles. Don't the lost, don't the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is making an interesting observation on how human beings work. The natural bent of humanity. And I think if we'll just be honest for the next few moments, you'll know this is true. It is you treat me well, I'll treat you well, right? It's kind of this upward, positive spiral. You do well unto me, and I will do well unto you. And the natural bent also to humanity is you do something hurtful or you oppose me, that I'm going to oppose you right back. And it becomes this downward spiral that breaks down communication, people, and ultimately societies as a whole. Hate usually breeds more hate. You see it in our society, right? Is there any wonder why we found ourselves in a cancel culture, right? So ideologically, we're different, canceled. You're done. We can't, we can no longer communicate. So if you go back to last week, if you were here about kind of turning the other cheek and, you know, giving them your coat also, you're staying in life, you're still doing life with someone that sees a little bit differently or maybe even a lot differently, right? And so we live in this kind of cancel culture. But Jesus, he came to redeem us. He came to set apart for himself a community, a group of people who have experienced 
loving your enemy firsthand through the death of the cross when their Savior died for them, when we are empowered and equipped by Jesus who is able to become this the one to perpetually stop this kind of cycle of hate where we get to the point where we say, no, enough, enough. Jesus Christ has made us different. We can go out into this world and we can be different. We can resist the enemy and in so doing, lift up the name of Jesus. And our response to our enemies become the litmus test if we are wholeheartedly following Christ. The activist and writer Dorothy Day said it like this, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. I read that. I'm like, ouch. It's about three weeks ago. I was like, ooh. Because mm. I got to admit, I love my friends deeply. I love my coworkers. I love my church family. I mean, I, 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 I love deeply with this. Honestly, I'm pretty comfortable hanging out with anyone that's kind of, you know, just similar interests. You know, it's great. But I begin to think about this. If all I'm ever around is like Jesus people, there's a problem. Because I deeply love those people. Like Jesus-centered people, come on, let's just, let's go have lunch. Even if we like different football teams. It's playoff time. I got a joke about it. But I, 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 wow. So I really only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least. So how do we get out of our comfort zones? How do we love those who feel impossible to love? How do we love our enemies, whether that's an ideological enemy or someone that's just bringing just constant discomfort or literal harm into our lives? Well, Jesus gives us two commands. We pray for them and we love them indeed. Indeed, in what we do. Verse 44 again, but I say unto you, love your enemies. You've heard hate them. I say love them. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now we're going to unpack more of the power of praying later, like coming in further down in the series when we get to chapter number six. But let me just say this. When you... Pray for someone that you do not like. Remember that person that you thought of, whoever that was? When you begin to pray for someone that you do not like, you may very well, they, they may very well be your enemy, and you pray for them what God wants for them, it begins to do something to you. When you pray for your enemy to be brought to the conviction of sin, and when you begin to pray that they experience the love of Jesus in their lives, when they we pray that they would be adopted, if they're not a believer, adopted into the family of God for them to live a life of flourishing and grace on their lives. By the way, the same grace and flourishing that you have in your life as a believer. It's rich. It's awesome of what we have in Jesus Christ. When we begin to pray for that enemy, that person we don't like to experience the same thing, you'll be amazed at how that individual begins to cease as much, maybe, to indeed be your enemy. C.S. Lewis, sometimes he's hard to understand, and he put, he, he put it so well. 
when he was talking about praying for your enemy. Now, you've got to understand when he's writing this, it's literally the, you know, during the World War II, and he cites two enemies, um, you know, Hitler and Stalin. And so what I want you to do is I want you to try to maybe replace them in your mind as we read this quote from C.S. Lewis. When you pray for Hitler and Stalin, how do you actually teach yourself to make the prayer real? Can you imagine praying for them, right? So he's like, how do you do that? The two things that help me are, A, a continual grasp of the idea that one is only joining one feeble little voice to the perpetual intercession of Christ who died for these very men. So when you're praying, you're just one, but you're connecting that prayer to the one that would have died for those enemies that maybe you have in your mind. Or B, a recollection, as firm as I can make it, of all one's own cruelty, which might have blossomed under different circumstances into something terrible. You and I are not at the bottom so different from these ghastly creatures. What Lewis is saying is when you really pray for someone who is an enemy of yours, you start to see deep down that you're really actually at the core, in a sense, no different than them. You have the same power to commit the same type of sins, but by the grace of God and the restraint of the Holy Spirit and your sanctification process, you're not going to go down that route. But you begin to understand that you start going down that route. You stop the sanctification process. You stop listening to the Holy Spirit. You stop being in the Word. You stop praying that you could go down the very same paths as that individual. It just begins to put a pause on maybe kind of our thought process toward that individual. They too are image bearers even if they're denying that image bearer on somebody else as they're committing sin on them. But you realize that that person too is an image bearer and they need Jesus just as much as we need. And what a perfect song, Mike. And that moves you to pray for them more and more at the same time, wanting their evil to stop. And the other command Jesus gives to us is to not only pray for them, but to love them with deeds, with actions where it moves beyond praying things over them, but then to be the hands and the feet of Jesus of what you've been praying for. Do you see how that works? You begin to pray for this awesome moving in their life for, for, for whatever. Maybe they need to stop doing the evil or maybe they need to, to grow in this certain area and you're praying over that individual and then it moves to the place where, okay, God, now let me be the vessel or a vessel to start that process. Lord, I need you. I don't want to be that close. I don't, Lord, I don't want to do that. And loving someone does not just mean feeling positive thoughts about them. You can actually love without those feelings. But that we resolve and commit in our minds and hearts to show them the love of God through our words and our deeds. You've listened so well. Let me just conclude. My question to you is this. How is this possible? It was radical some 2,000 years ago, and it's radical in 2023. I can tell. It's radical for me. On Monday, I'm like, yikes. This I, I, I didn't want to study it. I didn't want to try to start living it this week. I'd rather just, yeah, I'm going to hate my enemies. How's it possible? 
Why would really anyone want to do what I just said? Begin to pray for that person and then be the hands and feet of Jesus in that person's life. Well, the answer is actually rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in the fact that deep down we know that we actually were at one point enemies of Jesus too. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, For if when ye were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we were enemies at one point from Christ. And yet God, through his son, advances towards us to reconcile it. So now we're no longer enemies. Now we're seated at the table. We're one of the, we're one of the adults now. We don't have to sit at the kids' table anymore. We get to sit at the adult table with Jesus. It's amazing. Jesus embodied this on the cross when suffering in his, by the very hands of his enemies, the ones that literally mocked him, beat him, crucified him there. What is Jesus doing? He's praying for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The very ones that have brought about the evil unto him, he's praying for them. And clearly, he's the hands and feet of Jesus because he's dying for them, but he's also praying for them. The two are seen connected on the cross. So I've got a tough question for you as we close. What is one thing that you can do this week to love your enemy? Ah, oh, it's a great message, Ryan. Praise the Lord. What can you actually do this week? Maybe it's just starting by praying. It's a good spot to begin to love your enemy. Begin to pray this week. Maybe you've already been praying or God moves it beyond. What is something that where you can be the hands and feet of Jesus in that person's life? Maybe it, be, maybe it means befriending them because Jesus would. Maybe he would. We don't know. He's the, obviously the friend of sinners, but maybe that's what it means for you. Or maybe it could mean that out of love for God and others, that you say what they're doing is evil because Jesus would do that also. You pray about it and that God would, that, that, that evil would end someday. Loving your enemies does not mean that you try to be friends with all of your enemies. That's not what I'm saying. Maybe that's what you could do. Back to our definition of enemy one more time. An enemy is a person or a group of people who cause you harm, discomfort, and or who stand against what you value. Let's take that first word, harm, again. If they're intentionally inflicting pain and harm on you, maybe enemy love looks like praying for them, that they would get right, that if they need to come to Christ, that they would come to Christ, and that you're calling out that evil, calling the police so that it will stop. But you can do it in a way that models dignity and not dehumanization. Discomfort. If they bring discomfort to you, maybe enemy love looks like praying for them that they would be brought to a conviction of sin and trying to win them over with your acts of kindness. Or maybe it looks like telling them to stop. What this does, this hurts me. This brings discomfort. Please stop. Maybe that's what it looks like to, to love them. Either way, we don't destroy them. We just simply remind ourselves that they are image bearers too. Ideological enemy. They stand for maybe something that you 
they stand against for something you stand for. Maybe it looks like praying for their hearts to change no matter what. Maybe it looks like protesting. Maybe it looks like voting or having conversations with those who you disagree with to tell them why you believe what you believe. Either way, we do not demonize them because they're fearfully and wonderfully made as well. Guys, this is radical. And how does the chapter end? Nick, can you bring up the verse? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Let me let you off the hook. Good luck with these. on your own but in Christ it's possible and by the way it's required and so what we ought to be praising God for is that Jesus perfectly lived this perfectly loved his enemies perfectly never objectified another image bearer perfectly was willing to turn that other cheek Perfectly willing to, to go that extra mile, two, three, four, that we talked about last week. Perfectly willing to say, hey, hey, you, I'm willing to be crucified completely naked. The shame of shame. He walked perfectly for you. Because God actually requires perfection. And Jesus was that perfect one for you. So if you've never trusted him as your savior, you've got to live up to this perfectly. Or... You accept the one that did. And in God's amazing grace and compassion and kindness, Jesus' record gets applied to Ryan. And so now I can say, yep, I'm going to heaven because Jesus was perfect. This is his way, the way of Jesus. It's hard to loving our enemy, but through the power of the spirit, his, his spirit in us, Christ's spirit in us, we actually can begin to take steps to loving our neighbor. One final question and I'm done. What if right now, all that's keeping you from experiencing this full rule and reign of Jesus in your life, like, you know, you look at others and man, like, man, they just look like they're just glowing with Jesus and I'm not. What if the difference between that and maybe where we're struggling is that we're not willing to love such people. Maybe it's harm, physical harm, tough, maybe discomfort, or ideological differences. We could deem all of them, okay, yeah, they're an enemy somehow, perceived enemies, some of them legitimate, of course. A lot of them sometimes even perceived enemies. I'm gonna love them. I'm gonna pray for them. And I'm going to be the hands and feet of Jesus in their life. Because that's the way of Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed.